I'm sitting here at a cafe, located in the middle of Cornell University's campus. This cafe is called Temple of Zeus, which, as the name suggests, marks a sort of religious space in the heart of the Arts and Science College at Cornell University, since everybody used to hang out here. But this place is different, to say the least. A few months ago, you could barely find a seat, but now there are literally dozens of empty chairs, each singular at their own isolated table. You could always overhear conversations surrounding politics or the latest gossip. Now the only sound is the faint clicking of keyboards as we all Zoom chat. The smell of coffee no longer lingers in the air. You'd have a hard time smelling it anyways since our faces are all covered with masks. This place gives a glimpse into how college life, along with the rest of the world, has been flipped upside down by COVID-19. As I sit here, I'm left with the question, how can we begin to understand this change and how can we predict what will happen in the future? My answer, thinking about weather and climate. Now these seem like strange metaphors for describing how COVID-19 has changed our college campuses, but the study of atmospheric sciences provides an interesting framework to predict how the metaphorical climate change of higher education will shape out, for better or for worse. Hey, I'm Seth Bollinger and welcome to Clara Talks, the podcast where we seek to connect the truth of Christ with every person, every study, at every campus. Today on the podcast, Forecasting an uncertain future at college campuses. When I was about eight years old, I first heard about something called climate change or global warming. Apparently that was something humans had created by our way of living. I was told to turn off the lights to save energy and to recycle paper to save resources. I remember thinking that it was very strange that humans, who are an animal species, among others, could be capable of changing the Earth's climate. When I think of the topic of climate, my first inclination is to think about politically charged topics like climate change and policy. Maybe even somebody like climate activist Greta Thunberg. But I think these things cloud my judgment. Possibly rain on my parade. I mean, the topic itself seems to get me under the weather. Sorry, I can't help myself when it comes to topical puns. But for real, I think I tend to forget that there's a whole dedicated study to meteorology and climate studies that has real implications for how we live our lives. I remember growing up and thinking that being the weatherman on TV was the easiest job ever because all he had to do was look outside to predict the weather. But that's not literally even close to how our daily climate is measured. To learn more about the study of weather and climate, I reached out to my friend Carly, a Cornell grad with a degree in atmospheric sciences and communication and former editor-in-chief of Claritas. Carly, what is up? Yeah, it's going good. So I think what I wanted to do first is give me your elevator pitch about why studying weather is actually cool. 
Well, I, 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 I do take offense at the actually cool part, but I'll, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> so this is what I used to tell people in high school, and I told them I wanted to major in atmospheric science. I was like, um, what other job can you be wrong more than half the time and still keep your job? You've got a tremendous job security. <laughs> um, but it's also really interesting because you're basically taking math and physics and actually applying them for once. Um, so that is, that's really why you should study weather. Yeah, that's so interesting. Cause that's kind of, that was always my perception of weather is like, well, it, it could just be the easiest job ever. Cause you can get it wrong all the time. Right. <laughs> but, <laughs> but really that kind of leads into this question of like, like why is measuring weather so challenging? I mean, right now in Ithaca, it's snowing outside and in three days it's forecasted to be 60 degrees. Why is it so challenging to measure the, our weather system? I would say the biggest impediment to um, good weather predictions is actually the amount of data that we have. So you're like, oh, like we, we live in an, an era of big data, right? And we're used to being able to have all of this information at our fingertips. And the crazy thing is, is like not even all of the data in the world that we have would be enough data to actually um, predict the weather 100% of the time. Because if you really think about it, every single dip in the hills or every single like puddle of water, um, like a tiny pond that you have, like that is impacting the weather system. And the, the minute changes of like, whether there was dew on the ground or not that morning impacts what the weather's gonna be like three weeks into the future. Um, so there's just so many factors that play into um, even the most simple of, of weather forecasts. And honestly, like predicting the weather is one thing, but thinking through it on the climate level, right? Like the big picture level, that's a whole other ordeal. What are the distinctions between measuring weather now and then also measuring our climate in the long run? Usually the terms weather and climate can be used pretty interchangeably, but there's actually a very significant difference, especially in the meteorological community. You'll get um, dirty looks if you confuse the two. Um, but basically when we're talking about weather, we're talking about short time periods. So like you would say, what's the weather going to be this weekend? You wouldn't say, what's the climate going to be this weekend? Um, climate in um, meteorological uh, term uh, is actually a 30 year time span. Um, so like when we're talking about the climate or climate change, we're not talking about like a single weather event that's going to happen. Like climate change caused this hurricane. Well, it's actually impossible to say because climate change is like 30 years of more hurricanes rather than just a single event that you can put it on. That's so interesting, that distinction, because I've been super guilty of messing up those those terms, weather and climate. Um, and you know, right now we're thinking through um, higher education and how COVID has kind of changed in a way what I would have described as the climate of, of Cornell and other colleges. But actually, I'm starting to wonder if I should really be using the weather of Cornell and, and, and higher education, because I think, well, maybe this could be a short term thing. The thing that COVID has done is kind of created this weird seasonal gap. Um, and it's kind of hard to d describe how this could be a long-term event. In your opinion, do you think that COVID has contributed to a weather change at colleges now with the way that we operate? 
Or do you think this could have long-term effects in the climate of how we operate at school now? I think that we can see both. You know, like, there's definitely changes to the weather. I mean, like, obviously people are not uh, having social gatherings larger than 10. Um, people are wearing masks. Uh, the, the way that the campus operates is completely different. And it's, it's been, it, um, that will continue. But I think there's also something to think about in regards to climate impacts. Like even like six years from now, um, when hopefully we'll have a vaccine and, and uh, we'll be able to fly on airplanes without masks and you'll be able to see your grandparents and things like that. Um, there may be uh, more available online classes. We may have um, like a higher standard for cleanliness or like I, I even imagine like the climate might change on Cornell's campus with like how close you stand next to someone in the dining hall you know like these are things that we um, just like how it's really difficult to predict the, the earth's climate um, it's also really difficult to predict the climate of, of Cornell moving forward but I think that this this season definitely has some long-term implications that we, we probably don't even know yet well, thank you, Carly, for your climate expertise and helping me distinguish between climate and weather. This has been super helpful, and I hope uh, I'll let you know how the climate shapes out. Oh, I mean, the weather shapes out in the future here. Yeah. Exactly. Well, thanks for your time, Seth. Carly left me with a really fascinating perspective. This distinction between weather, which is a seasonal change, and the long-term nature of climate really made me think about how my college experience fits in with this. If you're a college student, heck, any student right now, it is clear that our experience is very different than it used to be. Like we saw in Temple of Zeus, none of the campus facilities are operating the same way. Basically all of our classes and assignments are online, and our social settings have been reduced dramatically. So there's no argument that the weather of our school settings is being thrown out of whack. But will this have lasting long-term effects on the climate of our school? That's a very different question, and it's a question that depends on your perspective about how the coronavirus will play out. I think it's gonna take us a while to have coronavirus under control. This is Ryan Lombardi, Vice President for Student and Campus Life at Cornell University and Cornell's biggest email celebrity. Uh, at a national level, I, you know, we're not seeing good evidence that the, that the virus spread is contained right now. The numbers nationally continue to grow. And, and now we're seeing that, uh, unfortunately, in the state of New York and kind of closer to home, too, in Tompkins County and in the counties surrounding. Vice President Lombardi and the rest of the Cornell administration took a giant risk by offering an on-campus experience for Cornell students during the pandemic, when so many other schools, including most of the Ivy Leagues, decided to go fully online. You know, when we thought about opening Cornell, it, it became clear to us that the, the only way we would be able to do so effectively and to mitigate that spread is if we were able to develop really robust uh, testing mechanism whereby students, faculty, and staff could be tested regularly. So we were essentially able to identify anybody that tests positive and then properly support them through quarantine and isolation to make sure that it, it mitigates that spread. And so that required us to establish the testing framework that we have that allows students to get tested two times a week. I get tested two times a week. And then having ample isolation and quarantine space, which we secured before the semester, being able to move really quickly when we do have uh, students or faculty and staff um, 
test positive to make sure they go into isolation. And frankly, Seth, the other big ingredient was whether or not our community, students, faculty, and staff could adhere to the public health guidelines. Um, because you, could, you can test all day, and yes, you, that, that isolates people, that gets people kind of out of circulation that might have the virus. But you know, part of this is you wanna be upstream and you wanna prevent the virus from coming in in the first place. And we know that some of the public health guidelines you know, proper distancing, mask wearing, face coverings, and, and these types of things, hand washing, you know, rigorously really do help uh, as well. And so it was really those combination of things that um, were going to determine our success. And fortunately, to date, um, they, they have done that. They have worked. And even though these measures have proven successful in mitigating the spread of the virus, it's clear the current weather of Cornell's student life has changed a lot. Opening Cornell this semester has required us to really turn upside down the student life experience and, and what people typically think of what student life at a university will be like. And, you know, many of these things, as you suggest, are short term when you think about, you know, the restrictions on, on gatherings and events and group sizes. You know, when you think about student life at college, it's, it's kind of completely predicated on human connection, right? And, and being with, with groups of people that might be exploring, um, you know, like interests or have, uh, you know, some other type of affinity connection or maybe, you know, play the same sport or, you know, there, there's all these connection points, you know, your, your academic uh, program and your academic progression, your research, there's all these connection points which have really uh, had to be disrupted in the short term right now to, um, again, mitigate the spread through, through large gatherings or through these close contacts. So in the short term, you know, what I've often said is that this semester we've had to try to put together a student life program that's almost antithetical to what everybody thinks kind of normally about student life, which means a lot of virtual, a lot of really small group, you know, intimate level gatherings with, you know, one, two, certainly less than 10 has been our standard. Despite the setbacks faced by students and administration in this strange season, Vice President Lombardi can see some positive long-term changes that may affect the climate of Cornell in the future. You know, one of the things that it strikes me is that with a lot of the virtual engagement that we've had to do in programming or in, let's say, job searching or other things along those lines, some of those spaces have become more accessible to more students. Um, so spaces that maybe have felt more exclusive in the past or that there was, um, you know, barriers to access for certain populations of students or, or things like that, I feel like have gotten much more accessible. I mean, you, you think about different programs that you hold or different things that might take place and, and virtually you're seeing much greater levels of attendance than you did before. So you're seeing more people accessing those resources and connecting virtually because of the means to do so. It, it recognizes that people have different life situations and um, different uh, unique perspectives to bring to bear, but it allows everybody to kind of level that playing field in some regards. At the same time, it, it has amplified some of the inequities that exist, right? You know, because certainly people with you know, good, safe learning environments or strong Wi-Fi or other things like that could have potentially still more access than others. And so it, it has amplified that. But I think that has raised awareness for people who maybe weren't previously aware of those inequities and has caused, you know, maybe this is faculty or staff, has caused folks to really have to take stock of how they think about supporting students at Cornell. Um, maybe those inequities weren't as inherent to them before, but now when, when uh, it engaging with students via Zoom, people recognize that and recognize the challenges that maybe someone has and they're more empathetic and they, they make more of an effort to provide inclusive environments. Vice President Lombardi ended by sharing with me his hope for what we can take away from our experience with COVID-19. My hope is that 
what we have collectively gone through as Cornell, as a nation, as a, as a world, um, has increased everyone's level of empathy for each other and, and their grace and their understanding. I have certainly felt that on our campus that, that students, that faculty, staff, everyone's kind of giving each other a little bit more benefit of the doubt and, and, and just being willing to acknowledge that everyone's struggling right now and everyone's, you know, has their own kind of personal battle that they're, they're kind of navigating with regards to how this pandemic has impacted them, some more uh, disproportionately than others. And I think that has created this greater level of empathy and, in a sense, sense of community that we have to come together in order to make our way through this effectively. Cornell is a different place this semester than it once was. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm sitting out on the arts quad right now on a beautiful fall day where, like Temple of Zeus, students are zooming into classes and studying. With the sunshine, bring small groups of friends sitting next to trees. Some of them are even using the social distancing seesaws that the university set out. There are less people out than a normal Cornell semester, and social distancing is, of course, a priority, but there's a sense of togetherness that permeates the atmosphere. It's subtle, but tangible. And for a second, you could be fooled that there's no coronavirus at all. The hardships we face from the virus seem to show a renewed sense of joy on campus, especially when the weather is as gorgeous as it is today. I'm reminded of a passage from the book of James in the New Testament. James writes, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Lacking in nothing? Currently, COVID has caused us to lack so much. That could be a good way to describe the forecast for college right now. But counting joy in trials? This is a whole other challenge. Yet when I start to think about it, I wonder if there are little pockets of joy that we could see impacting the climate of Cornell for the better in the future. Along with our reduced social settings has come an emphasis on closeness with our friends and neighbors, like on the Arts Quad. The campus's continued efforts to band together, get tested frequently, and follow the rules could possibly be instilling a brotherhood or bond that might impact our climate for the better in the future. The focus on the little things, remembering that life is short and precious, all of these things that we are emphasizing now might be indicators of a more hopeful future. We've all felt the effects of the stormy, rough weather in the long term. And unfortunately, it's not going to go away as fast as we'd like. But when we zoom out and begin to think about how the climate of our school could be changing, there's a chance that all of the hardship we are experiencing could lead to beauty in the future. In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Try to exclude the possibility of suffering, which the order of nature and the existence of free wills involve, and you find that you have excluded life itself. Maybe within the torrential downpour of disappointment we're facing at college right now, there's a hope for a climate change full of life, where we remember that unity and caring for one another should come first. I guess we'll just have to wait and see.
Claritox is a production of Cornell Claritas, a journal of Christian thought at Cornell University. You can read our latest issue and explore our other musings and writings at www.cornellclaritas.com. Join us next week as we explore the political climate of our college campuses. Until then, I'm Seth Bollinger. Thanks for listening.